It is really good to be with you. It's a day that I've been looking forward to because for the last last year, you might remember, we started a study in the book of 1 Samuel and the beginning of David's life that started way back before he was born. And this year, we're going to finish um, the story of 2 Samuel. So we're going to be taking a look at the life of David. And as I was getting ready for that today, I was spending a little bit of time just reflecting about David's life in this story, which is two books in our Bible, but one continuous story. It almost doesn't miss a beat. And sometimes I think the division, as we'll see today, actually does us more harm than good. But my suspicion is is the scroll they ran it on ran out, right? So they started a new one. They didn't have copy machines and printers and all that fancy stuff that we do now. But I was thinking about this story, and you know, of all the stories in the Bible, this story of the life of David is given the second most um, length or um, focus, right? Number one is Jesus, right? Jesus is number one. You got that, right? We're good on that one. Jesus is number one. He gets four books all to his own. David gets two, right? But besides just the length of it, I was struck a little bit as I was reading, and, and that is like how honest and human this story is. One of my professors used to call it earthy, right? Besides the fact that David is a king and he's always going off to battle, there is so much in his story that resonates with me or feels like what my life does. His choices are often not black and white. Morally, he has tough decisions to make. God has called me to serve the king and the king is trying to kill me. What do I do? My best friend is the king's son. Do I trust him? I've been run out of the king's house and I'm running out, out living out in the wilderness with a bunch of uh, rejects who are tough and hard men. And how do I lead them and what's appropriate? It's not morally easy. And yet I relish that about his story because it feels like my life sometimes, huh? I've got hard decisions to make that I wish I had more da- data on. But we have to do the best that we can, and David models us for us that. The other thing that I noticed as I was looking at this story is that, you know, there's a lot of great things that happens in this story, and with the exception of maybe David killing Goliath, nothing really miraculous happens, huh? God does not intervene and strike people dead. No one walks across the Sea of Galilee. There's no Red Sea parting and all that. We have a guy's life. Now, an extraordinary guy who's put at a crucial point in history, right? Um, But he has to go it the same way we do. Making decisions, evaluating what's in front of us, trusting that God is working and present in what he's doing without seeing manna or water or seas parting. It feels like our lives, doesn't it? And I think the reason that I'm attracted to is that it speaks so powerfully to what it means to be for David a follower of Yahweh and for us a follower of Jesus. We know God's alive and at work and has chosen us and called us to something, but the process of living this out sometimes is difficult, mysterious, and not quite as certain as we'd hoped for, huh? Does anyone else resonate with that or is it just me? Even the Texans are smiling over there. So that's the reflection or the thing that I want to step back and say about this as we look at the rest of this story, as we move forward to the exciting part, I guess. But we have to remember where we ended. And we ended at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31. 
Does anyone remember what the big event of that chapter is? Saul dies. Yes, that's the big event. Um, And that's an event that David apparently has been waiting for for a long time, huh? I don't know if you remember, but early on in Saul's reign, there was the whole event with the Amalekites, and he was sent out to wipe them out because we'll talk about that more later. Um, And Saul doesn't do it, right? He wipes out the convenient ones and takes all the, the property and the good stuff for himself. And it's at that point that God says, I'm basically your days are done. And he says, I'm going to David's going to be the next king. That was chapter 16. A lot of action happens between chapter 16 and 31, huh? Where David is living in the reality that God has chosen him to be the next king of Israel. But how do I live that out now that Saul's still on the throne? What is my response to him? And how does that look in my life? Saul tries to kill him a couple times. His best friend saves him. He ends up running in the desert. Samuel, his mentor, dies. All of this stuff happens while David's waiting to say, what's God going to do it? When's he going to do it? And how do I live in the in-between time? But before we move on to see that, I guess the question that we need to ask is, now that Saul's died, what's David going to do? It's his moment, huh? It's his time to step forward. He knows what God has promised him. How is that going to play out? But before we get there, I want to stop. We had trouble with this in the first service. My little clicker friend here was not working. Oh, look at that. That's beautiful. So I want us to look back and remind ourselves of how 1 Samuel 1 ends. Okay? First six verses. And now the Philistines fought against Israel. And the Israelites fled before them. And many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons. And they killed the son, his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and whatever his name is. And the fighting grew fierce around Saul. And when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. And Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run it through me. Or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his sword, his own sword, and fell on it. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. And so Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. That is not the Disney solution to an ending of a story, is it? Everyone dies. It's an awful moment. Let's make sure we've got the details straight, right? Saul's seriously wounded by archers. He commands his armor bearer to kill him. The armor bearer refuses to kill Saul. Saul kills himself, and then the armor bearer kills himself too. What is David going to do? Will he celebrate? Will he mourn? Does he see this as a good thing or a bad thing? Let's take a look. Now we're to Second Samuel, verses 1 through 16. And after the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites. Remember that. And he stayed in Ziglag two days. And on the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid him honor. Where... Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. 
The men fled from the battle, he replied, and many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. And then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. And there was Saul, leaning on his spear, with, his ch- with, their ch- with the chariots of their, and their drivers in hot pursuit. And when he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and said, what can I, and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. And then he said to him, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after, that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. And then David and all his men, all the men with him, took off their clothes and tore them. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord and the nation of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man, who brought the report to him, Where are you from? I am the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. And David asked him, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. And so he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. All right, I have one friend back in the Bay Area who always said I should come up here and say, why don't you guys just talk amongst yourself today? No. I've been waiting to use that line a long time. Thanks for laughing, Don. So I'll go back to making fun of Texans and see what's much more successful. It's a bit heavy, huh? What do we make of this? The first thing I want to point out to us is that the two stories should be pretty obvious. Don't line up, do they? There are some problems here. Let's go ahead and take a look at what those problems are. In First Samuel 31, the report we get is that Saul was surrounded by who? In Second Samuel 1, the Amalekite says he's surrounded by... What sounds more dramatic? Chariots. In First Samuel 1, Saul calls out to whom? His chosen armor bearer, who's presumably been him with him through the whole time. In Second Samuel 1, Saul calls out to who? Who never gets named. You notice that? Through the whole story, he isn't given the dignity of a name. In First Samuel 31, the armor bearer, on hearing Saul's request to kill him, does what? Why? Because he knows you don't kill the anointed, right? And David has shown us that time after time after time, or at least twice, that God put him there. God's the one who can take him out, right? But the Amalekite does what? And he tries to make it sound better. He said, well, he said to stand by me, so I stood by him, and then I killed him. The armor bearer then takes what? His own life. The Amalekite takes what? The crown and the armband and goes to take them to David. Let's first start 
by thinking about David's context a little bit. We're told at the beginning of 2 Samuel 1 that David comes to the, or David is, comes to the place where he's at from what? Waging battle with who? The Amalekites. Now we need to figure out who these Amalekites are, and we've seen them before in 1 Samuel, but the Amalekites first show up in the biblical story in Exodus chapter 17. We all remember the famous story when Moses holds his hands up in battle, the Israelites win. And when his hands go down in battle, the Israelites lose, right? Who are they battling in that battle? The Amalekites. And the Amalekites basically kind of were the pesky bully at the neighborhood school who were constantly there during Israel's wandering in the desert that every time they got settled would raid them and poke at them and annoy them and be a threat to them to Israel in their most perilous time in their history, huh? When they're wandering in a desert without a home and God is providing for them miraculously, but the thing that's showing up time and time again is these people. They're opportunists that take any chance that they get to move in um, and care for themselves. The next place that we see the Amalekites show up is in chapter 15 that I already mentioned, huh? Saul's given the task to go ahead and do what Joshua and the Israelites were supposed to finish when they took the land and get rid of these people, not because God hates people. We know God makes us all in his image. But these people threatened Israel's existence and faithfulness to God. And Saul does half the job. He goes out and wipes out the women and children and all that, but then takes the best for himself. And you know, when we do something, even if it's a good thing, but we do it not for God, but for ourselves or our own benefit, we soil the thing, don't we? And that's why God ends up so angry at Saul. And in chapter 16, he says, you know what? Your time with me is done and coming to an end. And then he goes and anoints David as the next king. Huh? And the last place that we see these Amalekites in the Bible is maybe the most famous. Who doesn't love the story of Esther, right? And the, pro- or the villain in the story of Esther is this guy named Haman. And guess who Haman is? He's an Amalekite. And what does Haman want to do? He wants to wipe out all of Israel. So in Israel's storytelling, the fact that these guys weren't taken care of was a continual threat that threatened their entire existence. And if it wasn't for Esther, who just happened to be there like the Amalekite, just happened to be on the mountain at that time, it might have been a different ending, huh? But that's who the Amalekites were. What's David's... Notice the other thing that's so interesting about this. The Amalekite comes... He tells the story of Saul and Jonathan's demise, and then what's David do? Takes off his clothes and mourns, right? But then he comes back and starts asking another question. And what's the first question he asks him? Who are you? And his answer is, I'm a foreigner, I'm an Amalekite. And immediately, suspicions, I think, are raised with David. Are we ever told that David knows this guy's full of it? We're not, huh? And one of the things that I love about this story is that we're not. How did David know? He wasn't there. We're not told that another report came by. But David's been doing this a while, huh? Let's listen to the details of the Amalekite story. He crafted it to paint himself in the very best light that he could. 
I happened to be there. The chariots were in hot pursuit. Saul called to me. My answer is, what can I do to serve you? He could not survive. And I brought you the crown and the armband. What do those things represent? The kingship of Israel. Is David going to let an Amalekite crown him as king? Not on his life, apparently. The Amalekite saw a dead king an opportunity, didn't he? He was an opportunity to gain a position and importance and power and a new and rising reign. But David saw something directly different, didn't he? David had spent most of his adult life looking at this same king. And he didn't see opportunity when he saw that king. He saw God's anointed. You see, David's primary orientation isn't politics, military, or economy. It's the heart of God, isn't it? God is his center. And it's the things of God that he's totally committed to. And David illustrates this to us time and time again. There is something more important to his life than the ordinary, the practical, or the powerful. Because he believes that God is at work even in the difficult and hard things that he might not understand. And what we see him do again and again in 1 Samuel and at the beginning of 2 Samuel is that he knows that God has anointed Saul's king and he's going to let God be God. The opportunity to serve himself and to claim the king and pronounce himself the royal one, he will let slut by one more time in order to do the right thing and mourn the anointed that God placed over Israel. I love this story because it illustrates some things that are hard for me. God works through sovereignty, doesn't he? I have seen him arrange the insignificant details in my life and yours in ways that I couldn't have anticipated to bring about his good, but not mine. And God works in the hidden and mysterious things, too. I'm often unsure of how or what he's doing. But like David, I try to suspect that he's up to something, and it's usually good, huh? Maybe it's always good. David trusts that God's at work here. That's why he lets Saul go twice. And that's why he is going to not seize this opportunity to take reward from a Malachite but do it the right way, even if it costs him. He is so, so good at letting God be God. What's he going to do now? What is he going to do now? I think we see him do two things that are really important. The first one is that he puts all the pieces together uses his wits, his resources, his intuition, and the prodding, I'm guessing, of the Holy Spirit to figure out that this Amalekite isn't telling him the whole truth, huh? And as a person in his position, he brings about what's a little uncomfortable to me, but for them is justice, doesn't he? You will not exploit Israel like this, as you've done in the past. This is not an opportunity for you to gain. 
But this is an opportunity for us to mourn the loss of our king. And so he strikes him down. But maybe more important is what he does next. We're told that he demands that the nation mourn. In 17 and 18, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow, as it is written in the book of Jassar. We don't have the book of Jassar, but that's not a problem because we have the book of 2 Samuel that records the lament for us. So David brings about justice where it's appropriate. Once again, one of those situations in David's life where it might not be completely sure what to do, but he acts and he acts in good faith trusting that he keeps God at the center of his life. And then instead of pronouncing himself king, he mourns for the one who's been lost. He mourns personally, and he leads the nation in mourning. So let's go ahead and take a look at what that looks like. Verses 19 through the end of chapter 1. The gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, and proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. These are enemy territory, right? Lest the daughter of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mount Gilboa, you may, you may have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields, for there is a shield of might, for there the shield of the mighty was despised, and the shield of Saul no longer rubbed oil. The blood from the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, and they were stronger than lions. The daughters of Israel weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain in your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more than, the one, more than that of a woman. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. David's first response is lament. Now those verses, particularly at the end, have been used inappropriately. Come on, Jonathan was his brother. We'll just leave it at that. But what else do we learn or we see from this thing? A couple things that I want to point out to you. First, in verses 19 and 20, David's lament says, let's not gossip about these people. Don't let the people in Ashkelon or the Philistines or the enemies terror me celebrate the fact that they've loved God. Don't let that happen because these two deserve more. In verses 22 and 23, we see that, you know, David had good reason to hold a grudge against Saul, didn't he? The man had tried to kill him on more than one occasion. But in this moment, because he was God's anointed, David does not go there. The anointed who was sometimes his enemy in this moment is honored as one whose sword did not run away, who died in battle for his country, and he will not have his people bringing up political deals 
but focusing on the fact that this is what God's doing amongst us. And then finally, in verse 25 and 26, I think you really see the heart of David as he mourns for Jonathan, huh? And we know from 1 Samuel 1 that those two had a special bond and that they were willing to sacrifice each other. Jonathan was brilliant in that he was faithful to David because he knew he was right and never betrayed his father one time in the process. My friend, that's really threading the needle, huh? That's what our lives look like sometimes. He must have felt like he was stuck between a rock and a hard place. And he found a way to be faithful to both. Mostly faithful to God, huh? And David had promised him that no matter what happens, I will make sure that I will not wipe your family out after you're gone, huh? Your wives and your children will be protected under me. And so at the end of his life, he wants to celebrate his brother. I think this is powerful and it's here because lament is what it means to be human. This is not the wail of pain and loss that is inarticulate, but articulate, isn't it? When I was in college, I got the opportunity to go to Africa on a, on a missions trip, and uh, we went to an African funeral of a non-believer, and there was a body laid out underneath a tent, and there were mourners all around them, and all they did was wail and flap the flies away. This is not what David's doing. He's articulating that God's in control. He's articulating that God's used these people. He's finding a way to draw the people back together and talk about their pain. It's a way of reminding us that we're to be in relationship with one another. We don't howl like a dog. We articulate and live together. And it's of the utmost importance. And if we lose this ability to do this, we lose our humanity in some regard, don't we? Lament and being honest about our pain and giving voice to it is one of the great things that David shows us. It's more important to him than claiming his throne. Because in so doing, not, he's not really acting as king, but he's acting as pastor to his people, isn't he? And showing them a better way. He will not be ruled by Saul's failings, but going to be ruled by his God who shows him that forgiveness and hope are possible. In doing this and reading about this, I found a quote from Eugene Peterson that I think helps us deal with the importance of lament. Eugene's going to talk about lament being um, a corporate or a national thing. Because one thing I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, is we are the most independent people in the history of the world. But everyone else in the history before us, or most everyone else in the history, knows that they rise and fall together. And they're a united people. And Israel was united people around their God and their king. And so this is a corporate lament for all of the people. But it's personal too, huh? So Eugene says, without lament... A nation is gradually and surely dehumanized into a military force or an economic function. If all a nation does is wave its flags in parade or boast of its standard of living or go to war and make money, it ends up sooner or later a husk. Lament keeps people in touch with the leaders and friends 
losses and defeats, limits, limits and suffering with its humanity. Lament keeps us connected with reality, with the actual, with God.